Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling podcast. For countless parents, the journey to unschooling has redefined childhood and transformed their family relationships. Are you curious? Together, let's explore what living and learning looks like without school. Hello, explorers. I'm Pam Larickia, and it's the 22nd of June, 2022, as I record this intro. This week, we're flashing back to episode 27, 10 questions with Teresa Graham-Brett. Teresa and I spoke back in 2016. Currently, she's the Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Arizona's College of Veterinary Medicine. She's an unschooling mom of two and author of the book, Parenting for Social Change. Teresa's background as a social justice educator gives her a unique perspective on parenting and unschooling. We talked about adultism, the conventional controlling parenting paradigm, screen time, and ways to move towards a more respectful, supportive parent-child relationship. Teresa shared so many stories from her unschooling journey and many profound realizations and aha moments. Her focus on creating social change is inspiring and just as timely and valuable today as it was when we recorded this interview. Here is one of the brilliant insights she shares about her journey around control. She said, this is the thing about control. When I controlled his access to everything, food, media, whatever it was, I was uninvolved because I had deemed everything he had access to to be safe. So there was no partnership. He would watch stuff, but I would not watch with him. If I think about that control responsibility dynamic that we talked about earlier, I had abdicated my responsibility because I had controlled the environment. So what I did was when I started to just dive in and say, I'm not controlling anything, I started watching with him. I observed him. I started really paying attention to who he is, not my version of who he is, but who he is really. Now, that makes so much sense, doesn't it? When we control the environment, we feel much less of a responsibility to be involved and engage with them while they're in it. They're safe. But that approach takes a toll on the relationship. Maybe they aren't feeling so safe. We don't know and understand them as well as we could because we're engaging less. We're working with our vision of our child rather than our actual child. We often talk on the podcast about how moving away from control is just the first step. We need to replace it with connection, being involved and engaged with our kids, seeing and hearing them and learning who they really are, rather than our version of them, which is often peppered with our expectations and assumptions. It is such a key aha moment on our unschooling journey. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Now, before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support the podcast through Patreon, and a big welcome to new patron, Daniela Magosi. Hi, Daniela. I deeply, deeply appreciate all my patrons. Your generous support is instrumental in keeping the podcast archive freely available to anyone who's curious and wants to explore the fascinating world of unschooling. If you'd like to join my community of patrons and scoop up some great rewards along the way, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash exploring unschooling. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Teresa. Hi everyone, I'm Pam Larickia from livingjoyfully.ca and today I'm here with Teresa Graham-Brett. Hi Teresa. Hi Pam. It is so great to have you on the show. Well, uh, I'm thrilled to be cool. part of it. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> uh, you've been on my list for a long time. It was nice to, uh, I, I saw you at the Childhood Redefined Summit, and it was great to connect with you again. It was wonderful. I really enjoyed that weekend, and it was a good um, time for me to reconnect to um, all the things that I wanted to be doing as well. So it was great. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Just as a brief intro for everyone, Teresa is an unschooling mom to two boys, Grayson and Martel, and she has over 20 years experience as a social justice educator. She brings that knowledge and passion to her understanding of parenting and parent-child relationships and to the unschooling lives of her two boys. 
She's the author of Parenting for Social Change, in which she walks the reader through the transformative journey from controlling parenting to supportive parenting. She's also the editor and writer for the Kindred Community and co-founder of the Alliance for Parenting Education in Africa. So I have 10 questions for you, Teresa. Let's dive in. Great. Yay. The first question, can you share a bit with us about you and your family and how you came to unschooling? Absolutely. So our family um, consists of um, myself and my partner, Rob, and then Martel and Grayson, who um, when we're recording this, Martel is 14 and Grayson is nine. And then we have um, our furry friends and family members um, Mm -hmm. as well, who are an important, especially um, to Martel and Grayson, very important part of their lives. Of course, they're important to us too. Um, And so um, we came to unschooling really as, um, you know, I I was one of the, those people who, when we decided to get pregnant, I spent a lot of time reading, researching, I'd come across unschooling at that point, probably through, I think it was some of Jan Hunt's work um, and, you know, knew that it was out there. And Rob and I had always talked about the possibility of homeschooling, given both of our experiences um, in institutionalized education, um, educational systems. And so um, that was sort of always a possibility out there. And then Martel came into our life and um, I just, you know, we did attachment parenting, all of that sort of thing. But as he got older, between probably around the t- around two, um, which is when so many parents, when so many of us are challenged <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> besides the lack of sleep, but when they start to really begin to, in so many ways, um, sh- um, sh- share their voice with us in a much louder way <laughs> once they're walking and, you know, moving about in the world. And then we're like, oh, I can't control what you do by picking you up and carrying you everywhere. So um, that really, you know, was a challenging time. And um, and then it was probably about when Martel was five. I just found myself starting to control more and more. I was always fearful. If I look beneath the surface, you know, I thought I was doing all the right things in terms of we're having healthy foods and we're doing all the right things and we don't have plastic toys and, you know, no sugar. And he only watches PBS. So if I was one of those um, parents who really believed so deeply and all the things that I had read about in mainstream media about what was going to make, you know, for a healthy childhood. Yeah. Martel, Martel was about five, and it was at that point where Rob just happened to take a video of me interacting with him. I was pregnant with Grayson, and Martel, probably four and a half, said something to me, and you know, Rob was thinking, "Oh, this is a happy family video around the holidays." <laughs> Instead, mm-hmm. it was a wake-up call to me, and I watched it later, and I was shocked by the level of disrespect and disregard with which I treated him. I mean, it was really just a huge slap um, for me to say, wow, the things you said you weren't going to do, you are now doing. And the ways that you say, well, if you don't talk to me in the right way, I'm not going to listen to you, which I had never thought I would be that parent. But all the things I learned from my own parents, from society, about what my role should be as a parent, all were there, whether I I knew it or not, and I just didn't see it before. So that was just a big wake-up call, and I said, this is not right. And I started diving in and really trying to figure out how I was going to shift. And I was also frustrated, and I was feeling a lot of things in terms of conflict in our relationship. I came back to radical unschooling um, as a result of kind of coming back into, what am I going to do to do this differently? Because this is not who I want to be as a parent. And that really just then moved us straight into we just went right into radical unschooling. We were not one of those families that said, okay, we're going to say yes a little more often. We were like, throw it all out, go in, <laughs> do it, <laughs> which I don't necessarily recommend for folks, but it's what we chose to do. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, once you saw it, that was, that was a big shock for you, right? So you wanted to uh, attack it. On all sides, right there. It w- that was it. I was like, this cannot continue. I cannot be this person. So whatever it is I have to do, I have to do it in order for him to be whole. Like I saw the childhood I had. And I was like, no, it can't happen. <laughs> it cannot happen. 
<laughs> yeah, and I have a couple of those videos lying around too. That when they when they go on, it's like, oh, I can't watch. <laughs> I mean, I know it's part of the process, and that's how I learned. And really, it, it is a great way to to see, mm-hmm. you know, and because you know what was going through your head at the time, but but that that's kind of irrelevant because you see what the interaction itself was, right? Right, right. Our intent is one thing and then our actions are another. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, A quick uh, little update on your kids I would love. Um, I was wondering if you could just share a bit about what they're interested in right now and how they're pursuing that and maybe how that interest came about. Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, as soon as we were ready to dive in to radical unschooling, then we kind of let go of a lot of things. But right now, so they have both been, um, have learned so much from internet access and media access, and computers. So they're still very much using computers as their t- one tool that they um, use to access the world and learn new things and learn all the things that they're learning as well as their friendships. But Martel, um, who's 14, he is very much into... Um, you know, he has friends that are across um, the United States, across the world. He um, talks a lot with them through Skype, interacts with his local friends on Skype because sometimes they, their schedules don't mesh and they can't get together. Um, but he does a lot of gaming. He's starting to explore a little bit of coding. Um, and he also is just a huge animal lover and connects with um, Sage and Chester, our dog and cat, and loves to take walks and, um, you know, just he's we last night we went to see Miyazaki's Totoro. It was playing at one of our local independent theater. He's still into those things as well. Um, so that's really what he's doing. He's big into gaming and, um, you know, gaming with his friends uh, who are all across the world. So that's that's kind of what he's doing. Um, and that really just developed over time as we re- released control and let him pursue the directions he was interested in. He went through his Minecraft phase. He went through many phases of exploring the computer and and that's what he's doing now um and continuing to do grayson is um he went through he's very much interested in animals and dinosaurs and nature and plant and we happen to live in uh, the sonoran desert so we're like on an acre and a quarter and so there's a lot of time spent outside digging um, mud is a great thing, <laughs> and um, you know, having his friends over and building rivers. It's funny we build rivers, but it's in Tucson. <laughs> 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 you know, we turn on the hose a little bit, and that makes a river. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he also um, is is a big gamer as well, and he loves. He has learned so much. He's gone through a phase most recently about immune system cells. And um, has very much been into the science. He's into science in many different ways, whether it's dinosaurs, genetics, immune system. Um, You know, he loves to play Universe Sandbox. I don't know if anyone knows that one, but that's one Mm. where you create... Uh, worlds, universes with planets and comets and they can crash into each other. So he's really just, um, you know, developed that over time. And that's where he's currently at. Um, So that's kind of where they're at right now. That's very cool. You know what? I that's one thing that we hear um, a lot of as we talk to unschooling families is how wide their connections are. Like you were talking about how Martel is, you know, online and chatting and gaming with people from all over the place, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. That's it's really cool because I mean I found the same thing with with my kids and and you know as they get older too. Um, it also kind of invites travel if someone's interested. You know, I've known a lot of people who've gone and visited friends that they've met either online or maybe at a conference, mm-hmm. and then they get together. Their world just seems um, bigger. Yeah, yeah. And in Martel, general. yeah, Martel just took his first trip by himself to Virginia from oh. Arizona. Um, to visit his uh, best friend who was an unschooler um, living in Virginia. So it's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Question number three, you have written on your blog about the concept of adultism. 
Um, I was wondering if you could explain how you define it and give us a couple of examples. Sure. Uh, my definition of adultism comes really um, from uh, other writers, people that I had read, and I came across it initially from Barry Checkaway, who I actually knew when I worked at the University of Michigan. And he did a lot of youth work um, with teens and youth. And he, um, it was his, what I read of some of his work that really primed me to be thinking about it more. And then I've been influenced by others as well. Um, and some people refer to it as childism. There's a book out there called Childism. Um, and adultism, from my perspective and how I conceptualize and think about it and was influenced by others, is really this belief that adults are better than children. Uh, and so fr stemming from that belief um, is a whole range of behaviors and other beliefs, which means because we believe that we know more, we are wiser, we are smarter, we um, have the right to control children so that we make them into proper adults. And it's out of those beliefs that um, adults have the right to control children's lives because they are young and because they're a part of that group of young um, people that we then have um, laws and institutions and systems that all control children's actions, how they learn, where they go, what they're allowed to do, what legal rights they have. Um, you know, I, I know some of the things I've seen in the Brexit vote recently reminds me of sort of that gap between what rights are of those who are under 18 and, you know, the, how they view the world. And yet they don't have a vote. As a, mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw some of that um, um, in the media or not, Pam, but that reminded me of the ways in which adultism operates in yeah. all over the world in that, yeah. yeah, the media was saying that if young people had had the vote, that the Brexit vote probably would not have um, passed. And yep. so, you know, a, a lot of that, of course, comes from John Holt and his view of childhood and rights that children should have. Um, and so the adultism is really that belief that we should control children because um, they need external control in order to develop properly. And so that showed up in my own life, for example, in determining when and how, once Martel, of course, I, um, I did breastfeed on demand, but once he got to a certain age and he was eating food, I suddenly decided that I had to tell him when and how to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I could not make that connection between, oh, breastfeed on demand, he should be able to eat on demand. <laughs> but all of my socialization into I know what's best for this small person, this child, meant that I decided for him when and how he should eat. So I didn't believe he knew what his body needed, when it needed it. I didn't believe he was capable of making decisions. And yet when I peeled back sort of my adultism, I saw that he was self-regulating in so many different ways. Of course, as a baby, we see that when we really look closely. And then as a two-year-old, he suddenly didn't lose that. <laughs> he was still <laughs> able to do it. But I decided he wasn't capable of doing it. So for me, that adultism showed up in controlling food, um, controlling access to media, controlling sleep, which you really cannot control, but somehow we believe we can control it. Um, you know, all of those things for his own good, because he was not capable of making those decisions decisions and or what he believed had no place in the conversation because certainly parenting is a conversation it's a relationship yeah uh, I think that that's something that's uh, that's such a huge piece of the de-schooling um, phase of the journey um, is the uh, you gain the ability to see your child as some as like a real person who has all those abilities like you said you know you saw that when they were young you don't realize how much of our own socialization has taken away that kind of personhood right it has so yeah yeah i think it's a it's a great for me one filter that really helps is is trying to get rid of the idea of seeing children as adults in training yes. as you mentioned. Yeah, cuz that that really uh, makes it more obvious um, the implications of that perspective because you're not seeing them as a child themselves, you're seeing them as what they're going to be in the future. So you're you're not concentrating on what they and who they are today. So I was wondering if you had a tip or two about 
um, how we can start to move away from that perspective. Mm, yeah, I think, um, you know, so much of my own journey and when I talk with other parents about their journeys and, and try to support people in the direction they're trying to go in around letting go of control, because that's really, I end up working with a lot of parents who are similar to me, very controlling, and under that control is fear. <laughs> fear that <Yeah. laughs> they're not going to grow up properly, fear of the future, fear of who they're going to be, which is um, fed by all the dominant messaging and narratives in our societies and cultures. Um, and so I think that one of the ways that I um, began to kind of, I guess, deconstruct that is a better word for me. Like, how do I dismantle these beliefs and ways of thinking? Like, it's really this frame of reference or, or worldview that children mm -hmm. have to be trained up as adults. And so... Once I began to, um, in some ways, Pam, this may sound abstract, but I began to see it as like this window through which I was seeing the world and that I mm -hmm. had the capacity to look out a different window. In my, you know, if I think about my house, ah. views, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so we may say, well, this is the only view. Well, it's really not. You go to the west side of your house, it looks different than the north side of your house when you look at the window. So if we merely see it as like, oh, that's one way to look at the world. What's a different way? That's one way to look at the child. What's a different way? And that um, often all the things I was afraid of, like when they were younger, they would fight. Siblings fight. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's not true. In my family, <laughs> right? I, that's a frame. A frame of reference is siblings fight and they have trouble. That's a frame of reference. Even my saying that, right, is a frame. Mm -hmm. So it's like yeah. even those statements, like that's the beginning of like taking it apart. Like, oh, siblings fight. Boys fight. Really? Okay. So let's step back from that and say, well, do boys really all fight? Do siblings always fight? It, is it my projection of what I think they sh are supposed to be doing that creates that view? Um, and so it began with when I would say those sort of declarative statements in my head or out loud, you always do this. Then I began to say, does, is that, does that always happen? Is that always the way it is? And so part of my way of moving away from adults in training was to begin to first just say, I can choose a different way of looking at this. Like <laughs> I have the power, which is, <laughs> right? Which is what I've given up. I'm going to accept everything that I've been told, but I have the power to look differently. What else might be going on? So I often wrote those questions on post-it notes <laughs> around my house. What yeah. else might be going on? What does the child really need? What do they really need? What do I really need? Um, what could be different about this? What am I not seeing? So those questions just stopped me and made me question what I thought was true. And I just read and read and read <laughs> all the time. And I started writing because that was my goal was to that de-schooling. So each of us may have different accountability. I think of it as accountability measures. How was I going to keep learning and growing? I needed to write and make sense of it. So I began by posting questions around my house. And sometimes I would pick up a mantra and I would use that for a few weeks. So when the boys were fighting and I would say, oh, they always do this. I would say, this is my issue. This is my issue, not theirs. So whatever happened to be below the surface of my fear, they're always going to fight. They're not going to love each other. All of those things. I would begin to say, is that true? How do I know that? Why do I believe that? And, and those may seem not as tangible and I'm, you know, you can help me sort of direct it in a more tangible way if we need to. But those <laughs> were the questions I began to ask myself to see them differently. I also, um, you know, one of the reasons I wrote my book was that I began to make the connections then uh, between the other messages that I would hear. So if I were looking at media um, and that was, of course, it influences all of us. I read an article about the damaging effects of violent video games. And I'd say, hmm, well, I wonder what other studies show, <laughs> because studies can show the opposite things. And I just began to be really critical about the things I read and heard and even the things that were popping up in my own mind that were the result of all of my socialization.
Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, um, some of the biggest clues, like like you mentioned, were if I heard myself saying a phrase or a sentence that had the words always or never, mm-hmm. you know, because that was always, always <laughs> a nice um, trigger because I, I quickly came to see that those were just generalizations and that meant I really hadn't dug in enough to see what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I mean, it's hard to um, go beyond more general um, questions because because it really depends on the person, right? What they've grown up with, what um, assumptions they have come to carry with them. And, and it's also about the unique children that they have, right? Yeah, I think, yeah. And so I think what what I, I like, there's a, a book I read a while ago. It's called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And it really resonated with me because every time there was something that was really bothering me, that was more of a clue that that was something that I should be digging into, that that's where I was going to get the biggest bang for my buck because that was something that was really getting in my face. So it wasn't about trying to smooth it over, get over it, you know, ignore it and move on, it was more, oh, darn, this is someplace I really need to start looking at more closely. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) That is so true. And, you know, I think that in some ways we want, we're used to, from our own school perspective, and even the way we think, you know, we're trained to think the world works, is there's a (laughs) step-by-step. Yeah. Right? And uh, if I do A, B, and C, that's what we learn in school, then it's going to get me this result. And then we become parents, and we know that's absolutely not true um, because each child is different. And then our own issues are different. And so I think you're right that um, I often write about that as the children are the mirror. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's all they are to me. Show up. Yeah. Oh, wait. I'm triggered. Oh, I got some work. Uh I got to go back and do some work. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same idea. And it's that's another school thing, right? Is because we've learned to be so afraid of being wrong mm-hmm. and being judged so that when something comes up, when there's an obstacle, when, you know, the children are that mirror that are showing us something that we're uncomfortable with, we really, we just want to escape it, right? We just want to try and move through it as fast as possible and, and not pick at it. But that's where you're going to to learn more. <laughs> it is. It's that's so that's so critical. So critical. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In in your book, you made a great distinction. We talked about this a little bit between power and control, and you emphasize that uh, letting go of control doesn't mean we abdicate our responsibility to care for the children in our lives. And I love the way you made a point of that. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping you could speak a bit about how all those ideas weave together. Yeah, I think um, because my own uh, struggle was around control, I really began to look at what is, what does control mean for me? What does it look like in our culture, in our society? And, and when I began to unravel in both the bigger picture and then in my own life is that we can try to control and our society sets control of others in place because there's fear. If we don't control children, then the fear is they will run wild. If we don't force them to learn the rules right away, then they will, um, you know, they won't follow the rules. If we let them eat whatever they want, they're only going to eat the things that are bad for them. And so when I began then talking to myself about control (laughs) and I began (laughs) talking with others about control, you know, after I had been in my own journey for a bit, um, you know, people go to automatically that control means you're uninvolved. Control me. I mean, letting go of control means then you're uninvolved, that you are then um, neglectful, that that means you're not a responsible parent. Because all the messages we receive about being a responsible parent means we control their food, we control their media access, we control um, their learning and how and when they learn. And that's what a good parent is. We make sure they do their homework, they go to school, they do all the things that we're told they're told to do, and that we're told to do. And so, in fact, um, being responsible for the care of a child 
doesn't require control. <laughs> it doesn't require control. It re- requires being in connection and being a partner and being a facilitator. And that, of course, you know, the one, um, Pam, I'm sure you hear this too, as you talk with parents who are maybe at the beginning, we're all at the beginning of our journey on certain parts. We're always all beginning <laughs> in our own yep, pieces. Yep. But I know um, there's one in particular, especially with young children. Well, if the child is going to run across the street, do you ever stop them? And of course, <laughs> you physically control children who are crossing the street, who are running across mm-hmm. the street and a car's coming. That goes without saying. But that's the extreme, but the the ways in which we control children are so um, normalized, we don't see it. And yet what we do, and I know I'm sort of ranging far from maybe all of what we started with, but <laughs> what we do as a result is that um, it's in some ways both harder and easier to just maintain control. It's It's easier because we then don't ever question the, the need to control and we don't have to face our own histories and our own experiences and what we believe. It's harder in that the control mechanisms that we put in place as parents damages the relationship and pushes children to rebel or shut down or have really experiences that are really harmful to them. And so, you know, we think that's the easier path Um, And it's only easy in that we can avoid some things and yet, um, you know, below the surface is all that harm. And so when I think about what it means to be responsible as a human being, what I feel like responsibility is in my relationships with children is really about knowing who they are and supporting that and creating the environments for all of us, really the whole family, but for them in particular, because I have more power from a societal perspective in which they can find who they really are. They can find their unique gifts. They can fail. (laughs) They can explore. They can do all the things that we all do as human beings and that that's more responsible for me than just sort of accepting that control is the way that I have to do that. I know that is such a great point. And I think that is, um, I think that's, you know, we were talking about people um, newer to unschooling because that kind of relationship with another person of support and connection is, is quite rare. So I think, you know, they don't know, uh, you know, they hear don't control, they don't know what to replace that with, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's like, well, then do you let them run out on the road so that they learn when they get hit by a car? You know, no, that's that's not the point. There's so much more um, that you can uh, use or be in relationship with them other than a control-based relationship. And yeah, I think that's what we spend a, a lot of time chatting with newer people, you know, how they can connect with their child, how they can support them, how they can, you know, just be with them, just right. be, right? Because, and that, it's in that being with them, that's where you start to see that they are actually um, capable human beings in their own right, mm, right? Yes, they're, yes. they're not adults in training. Yeah. You can, you can, they can, they think, they make choices, they, you know, how, how a toddler learns how to walk, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they keep, picking themselves up they keep trying they see what obstacles are in the way they they just keep going and keep going and that your child no matter their age will take that um that same process there you go yes that learning process that's a human learning process right and when you're not controlling them and trying to, you know, fit them into, oh, here's what our school learning process, which is really uh, more of a teaching process than it is a learning process. It's focused on being able to teach that certain set of curriculum to a large number of kids over a certain number of years. That's focused on the teaching, not on the learning side. So when you take away that teaching or that control piece, there is a whole bunch of learning and connection and support and everything that can replace it. That's beautiful. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just keep getting excited. Yeah, we'll say that. 
Okay, question number six. As people come to unschooling, um, they also, the other big question, if they're not running in the streets, is, uh, as we've talked about already, uh, screen time. And I like your phrase, media access. Um, and as we've talked about, that's probably the one of the main dominant cultural stories is all about how dangerous that is. You know, it's addictive, it's violent, it sucks their creativity. They'll have no imagination left. They just zone out and it's mind numbing. And I know this was a big part of your story and your transition. So I was wondering if you could share a bit more about that. Oh, yes. Um, you know, I, it's funny when I, uh, we, when Martel was very young, um, I decided, well, we're going to let him watch PBS Kids. <laughs> That's what he yeah. has to watch. <laughs> because, of course, it's educational and it's nonviolent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And so I'm going to give you free access at any time to PBS Kids. <laughs> and if you're going to go on the Internet, you get to go on the PBS Kids website and play yeah. those games because they're all educational. Um, so that was really uh, – that's where I started um, and, uh, you know, and then as he got older, we would branch out and, you know, oh, what was safe? Oh, let me watch this movie and make sure it's safe. And then, <laughs> okay, you can watch the safe. It's safe now, but let me fast forward, you know, past the parts that I don't, I think, um, are going to be too scary for you. Um, yeah. so this was my process was to do all of those things to determine what was within his comfort zone. And I'll tell you after the video incident where I got to watch myself. I'm um, being, re you know, recorded interacting with him, and we and I decided that's it. Things have to change. I remember Martel. Of course, he was fond of Elmo because he could watch Sesame Street. But he would watch this one. There's this one PBS show called Caillou. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you know Caillou? Yep. <laughs> okay. So every time Caillou would come on, there would be a point in almost every episode where Martel would say, "Shut it off." And so I shut off the TV. Well, I never thought about that. When I was still in the sort of dominant mode of everything on PBS Kids is fine because it's not my version of violence. And what I realized, I started doing, Pam, exactly what you talked about, like really watching TV with him. This is the thing about control. When I controlled his access to everything, food, media, whatever it was, I was uninvolved because I had deemed everything he had access to to be safe. So there was no mm -hmm. partnership. So he would watch stuff, but I would not watch with him. That was, in some ways, if I think about that control responsibility dynamic that we talked about earlier, like I had abdicated my, my responsibility, abdicated my responsibility because I had controlled the environment. Yeah. And so what I did was when I started to just dive in and say, I'm not controlling anything, I started watching with him. I observed him, exactly what you just said. I started really paying attention to who is he, not my version of who he is, but who is he really? And what I noticed in that show, Caillou, is that whenever the P Caillou always, quote unquote, gets in trouble at some point in the show which I'd never mm -hmm. paid attention to. And then when he starts to get in trouble, a parent um, then chides him. Or somehow, you know, the parent or the teacher is stepping in to correct Caillou. Every point when that started to happen, when he was watching that show, he shut it off. He wanted me to shut it off. Because mm -hmm. he couldn't watch that sort of maybe emotional violence being imparted on the child. So it was yep. fascinating to me that his self-regulation was occurring and the violence that I thought was violence, because, of course, I was perpetuating that violence on him, <laughs> the emotional mm -hmm. violence of control. He already saw it. And that blew my mind. Blew my yeah. mind, Pam. Because <laughs> I was like, wow, what did I refuse to see before that I can now see? So my conceptions about what I thought were safe were so different. They met this narrative, this societal expectation. But what he needed was for children to be emotionally and, phys of course, physically, um, but free and safe. And so the violence he saw was not the violence I saw. So that, if I could talk, point to one thing that so expanded my view of media access, 
that was it. Yeah, I love, love, love that piece where, you know, you think you're being a great parent by controlling their access. But what it does is those rules, you rely, you, you end up relying on those rules so much, you just, you know, leave them on their own to do everything. You stay within these rules, you're safe. And I'm a, and I'm a good parent. And, and that's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then if inside our comfort zone, our child gets upset or whatever, um, conventionally, they're shamed for that. It's like, you know, why? Don't don't worry about that. That's okay. You shouldn't be scared about that. You know, they uh, they get it. They get it on both sides, don't they? <laughs> oh, it's so true. It's so very true. I just started watching so many things with him. You know, we'd watch Teen Titans, or you know, I, at one point, oh my gosh, we were on this marathon Family Guy. And if any of you've watched Family Guy <laughs> for a, mm-hmm. for a social justice person, it was so <laughs> challenging for me to watch Family Guy because they are offensive and derogatory toward every group. <laughs> and uh, right, so but it was so fascinating because I saw the shows he would watch. Like they were like when youth were empowered. Like he loved Teen Titans because the teens save the world every time every every show they do something to save the world and then as he got older and we were exploring family guy you know he would ask me and i'd be sitting there uncomfortable thinking he's learning all these stereotypes he's learning all these things oh my goodness oh my goodness and you know he didn't <laughs> he didn't pick those things up does he in does he internalize stereotypes we all do of course there was a degree to which that happened but we could critically talk we could talk about it oh what did you think of that what are you seeing not in a way for me to manipulate him to believe what I believe but as a way to understand his experience with that media and that show or that video game like to just be in it with him changed how I saw his world and opened it up and then it paved the way for me to do it with Grayson I talk a lot about Martel because Martel was the first. You yeah. know, he sort of helped me through it. Yeah. I know. That's the same same for uh, me with Joseph. And that, when you're spending that time with them, so now when the control is gone, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm going to be with them because I'm going to see, uh, help them, support them, where their comfort zones are and everything. It is incredible how much you learn about them. Like, I remember um, his reactions and comments and conversations we'd have when from Pokemon, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's just, and then, you know, later on, The Simpsons and, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. It, the conversations are just incredible. It's it's yet another brick building, you know, that whole foundation where you know that this is they is an intelligent being, you know, they're bringing stuff in, they're processing it, they're thinking about it. And you're con- conversing with them about it, right? And yeah. you see the learning right, right in front of you. Yeah, it's amazing. I know when when people are always asking, well, how do you know they're learning? Because, uh, you know, we're talking with them every day, you can see them processing, you can see the new words, the new ideas, you, you can just see all that stuff connecting inside their brain. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you identify a number of tools that parents can use as they shift from controlling parenting to supportive parenting. And there are three I thought I'd pick out that I'd love for you to touch on. Uh, they are accepting our feelings, mindfulness, and awareness. So I was hoping you could describe what those are and a little bit about how we can shift away from the impulse to control in those areas. Great. You know, I think um, I'll start with the feelings, accepting our feelings. I think Mm -hmm. um, as I really dug in to try to figure out why my first reaction was to control, (laughs) I really had to look and understand that, um, you know, in our, that in my own childhood, and and frankly, for most of us, there, you know, we're seeing generations now of unschoolers, <laughs> right, adults mm-hmm. who are now having children, and you know, or who grew up in that way. But the vast majority of us grew up within controlling systems and family structures and relationships. That was just that's just the way the world has been. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I realized, my struggle to control, when I was in the need to control, underneath it was really a fear and a feeling of not being safe. That yeah. when things are 
in control, we feel safe. Oh, it's all under control. We're good. All right. I don't have to worry about anything. Yep. <laughs> how, how many times have I said that to myself? Still say it. To I know. Myself, right? <laughs> okay. Everything's under yep. control. I can go do this thing. Um, and, and so when I then began to say, well, why is it control equals safety? And then I began to understand that we learn lots of messages and I learned them too in different dynamics in my family that when, when the adults around me were out of control, like they were yelling and upset, I did not feel safe. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. When things were volatile or people got mad about the dishes or whatever it was, I was like, Ooh, I'm going to go high because that's easier and it's safer if I'm, you know, and we also get these messages growing up that, um, we, uh, you know, about our emotions. So you mentioned this earlier, the emotion that wasn't allowed in my family, this is where it's unique to each person, right? Your own family experience. The emotion that wasn't allowed in my family was anger. I couldn't express anger. Um, even though all the adults around me expressed a whole lot of anger in not very healthy ways, of course, I couldn't Mm -hmm. express that same anger and sadness, like, like neutral and slightly happy were good. Like the, that was the range of yeah. acceptable emotion, not too happy. Cause then that's uncomfortable for my, yeah. <laughs> so you could be in this one range. Um, and so what I learned then was to push down feelings of sadness and feelings of anger. And because the adults around me, when they expressed anger, it wasn't safe. It was a volatile situation. What I learned then is anger results in harm. So my own anger became my enemy. So when anger would well up in me, I would push it down. And I, and then if I burst, it burst out at some point, it's going to burst out. (laughs) The more you try to control it, it's going to come out. Then my feelings of guilt, um, you know, I would beat myself up. I would tell myself what a horrible parent or person I was. I punished myself as much as I was punished as a child. I learned to punish myself. So the, the, accepting my feelings and for some and for each of us it'll be different what those feelings are accepting those feelings as part of the human experience and saying i feel angry that's not a bad person feeling i'm not a bad person because i feel a feeling i'm not a bad person because i feel sad because i want to cry it is the full range of human experience. And what I learned was, um, I think you said this about discomfort, about when something's make, triggering you or making you uncomfortable, like you, that's the sign for you to go mm-hmm. in. Yep. I had to learn that accepting anger and moving toward my anger, saying, I can go and be angry and feel that and, and I'm safe and other people will be safe. It's okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I can explore where that anger comes from. I can understand anger and anger can be a friend. Anger can be, um, something that tells me something about myself. So accepting those feelings that had been, um, punished when I was a child was such an important part of my own process. So for each of us, it's going to be different what those feelings are, but we deny all of those (laughs) that we learned were bad in our families or in our schools or whatever it was. So I think, I know it's. I was just going to say, that's just, it's such a huge piece of our own growing self-awareness, right? And and nothing triggers us to start developing that as coming to unschooling, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And I think then what the mindfulness piece, as I, all of these things all interconnect because I had to be willing to be present with myself, As you Mm -hmm. said earlier, and as I've said, you know, when those uncomfortable feelings hit us, when we're on the discomfort is there, the ability to sit with that and be present with it is so difficult. (laughs) And so that mindfulness that in the moment now, where am I at and what's going on for me, but then also mindfulness and presence with the child. (laughs) That even I'm just going to sit right now, and even though I feel a hundred things are pulling on me, I'm going to watch this thing, this video that he wants me to watch, and just be there. Or go ahead. (laughs) I was just going to say that's such a a huge piece, right? And I think that's something that, for me anyway, that's something I learned through experience. You know, because people would say, you know, make that a top priority. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll try. (laughs) But it's like, you know, after a few times, it's like, 
wow, what I learned in that half hour mm -hmm. beats like every other choice I could have had. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, that mindfulness to be with them and that mindfulness with myself to take a beat, mm -hmm. you know, when some, some emotion or some feeling was welling up that those were huge, huge tools for me. Yeah. Yeah. And even that um, mindfulness of where my, where my feelings show up of, of, um, you know, at feeling out of control, unsafe or angry, it sh always mm -hmm. shows up in my stomach. Ah. So the place it shows up is I start to feel a little funky in my stomach. Sometimes it shows yeah. up as as hunger, but it's not hunger, it's anger. Sometimes it shows up ah. as nausea because, oh my gosh, something's really making me so uncomfortable. I'm starting to feel a little bit nauseous. Um, so I started paying attention to those early signals. What's going mm -hmm. on? Oh, wait, something's happening in my stomach. All right, I got, give me a moment. Give me a moment, guys. I just got to have a moment, you know, and to ask, ask for that time in for me. Like, I need a moment. This is really intense. Sometimes it would yeah. be just to close my eyes in the midst of what was going around me for just a moment and say, I'm feeling something. Even if I couldn't name exactly what the feeling was, just say, oh, I'm aware. My mindfulness allows me to tap into close my eyes. It's in my stomach. I'm feeling something. And then move on. What's the next thing that's going to, you know. Mm -hmm. So the I know sometimes sometimes a physical reaction shows up first, right? It you don't does. Even, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the mindfulness piece is both with ourselves and then also with the child. I know that if I, when I'm in that angry mode and what I want to do is lash out, if I get down and I really just observe the child, like look in their eyes, mm -hmm. it's so easy to dehumanize. And none of us want to think we dehumanize our children, yeah. but, it, but it's easy if all we see are the externals, like not the, like the messy house, the toys poured out on the floor, the mess, whatever, the spill, whatever it is, we look at that rather than the child. And that moment of mindfulness to just say, look, look at his eyes, look at him, notice his nose. <laughs> Notice the yeah. hair. Notice the things you really, really love. Like if I could take that moment in those intense times, like that two to two to six years old, and even now I yeah. do it at nine and fourteen. Like breathe and oh my gosh, look at him. And mm -hmm. that's that moment I need to to at least hold back from the lash out. And then even if there's a lash out, there's ways to come back from that. You know, we can talk mm -hmm. about that. But and then the, <laughs> la the last thing is the awareness piece. For me, the awareness had to do with multiple levels of awareness. Awareness that I was trained to be this way. Like all of my early training in childhood, the systems, the school systems, my family system, all of those things trained me, trained my brain right? Our neural pathways <laughs> yep. that are activated, reactivated and reactivated over and over. Like those things I was trained to do. So that awareness that I'm trained to be in this place and I can unlearn it, like that hope, I can unlearn it. And to know that that's what operates and that that gets reinforced in even now in the media, the messages I might get from family, the, you know, all of those things reinforce that control dynamic. Mm -hmm. And then what are my particular triggers? So that inter in my own personal awareness. So food was a trigger for a long, long, long time. Sometimes still comes up for me. Um, you know, there are other things um, that are triggers for me. So my awareness of this is a, a soft spot for me. I'm sensitive about this thing. So knowing that, oh, this, this might come up. Okay, so how do I take care of myself? How do I recognize that that's a place of healing that that's a place I need to go deeper in, you know, that awareness of my own dynamics, internal dynamics, and even the dynamics I may have set up in my relationship with the child. Because we get into patterns mm -hmm. <laughs> with them. And, and even as we're undoing what we did before, those patterns come back into play. And so we can even acknowledge that, oh, we're stuck in this pattern. So sometimes I would even say, like, if we were in the car and there's a lot that happens in cars. If people mm -hmm. have cars and they travel by cars, yeah. there's a lot that happens. I would say, I've got to pull over and just step out. 
<laughs> you know, like this is not working. I need to step out for a minute and, uh, you know, de, um, change that energy pattern or change that pattern of interaction. Or I can say, you know what, I'm getting intense. I'm going to step away. Um, so those things, that awareness, that systems and maybe my history level, how I'm trained in those ways. And then what are my own particular triggers? And then the awareness of the child. So each of them are so different. The things that I could say to one, I can't say to the other. So mm. the things that hurt one much, much more are very different from the things that might hurt the other one. The ways in which um, Martel needs me to reconnect after I've maybe, um, you know, lashed out or lost it or gotten upset or intense about something are so different from the ways Grayson needs me to reconnect and apologize. So that awareness of what do they need from me and did I even hurt them? Maybe I didn't. And it's just me, you know? <laughs> exactly. You know, sometimes so much is caught up in our own history, right? Um, as you said, it's it's totally individual with each child and our children as they get older, they get to know us too. Mm-hmm. And and they're aware of our triggers or our our, our personality, you know, all those pieces. Like, you know, I, I think I've mentioned before on an episode that my kids know um, I need a minute to absorb, you know, quick changes in plans and, and stuff like that. You know, I have to kind of process through that. I can't really just go, hey, cool. Um, so they are happy to give me that beat, You know, hey, mom, I'm thinking about this. You know, can you think about it? And uh, I'll come back in five minutes or whatever. (laughs) You know, the same way. And and that's all learned empathy and relationship (sighs) skills because of the way we've treated and supported and respected them, too, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I know <laughs> it's a beautiful <laughs> thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, there's a short quote from the book that I wanted to share. Uh, you write by the simple, but often challenging act of redefining our relationships with children. We can begin the process of creating profound social change. Um, I was hoping you could talk a bit about the social change aspect. Yeah. So I, much of my work prior to becoming a parent and what I still do now is around helping, it was working with college students around understanding the dynamics of racism and sexism, just oppression in general, um, heterosexism, homophobia. And I, I remember that in the, so much of the work that I did, by the time students are 18, you know, to 21, when we had them, most typically Mm -hmm. that age, it was so hard. It was a hard work to do, to have people realize what the dynamics were. And, um, And then when I started to do my own work as a parent, because what I realized was that even though I was out in the world advocating for equity and justice and a respectful treatment of others, no matter what group they came from and an understanding of that, I didn't see the ways in which my treatment of the children in my life, which was about power and control and domination. I mean, power Mm -hmm. over, not power with, but power over and domination trained them to believe that human beings have the right to control and dominate other human beings. That fundamentally, all I was doing was recreating that system of belief and interaction and behavior and even brain development. (laughs) So because children learn in relationships, brains develop in relationships. So dominance and power over and controlling others then becomes the norm, not only from a societal perspective, but internally and even in the ways our brains process. Um, those relationships. So I realized that by deciding that children don't have to be controlled, don't have to have power used over them, don't need to be dominated, by changing to this way of interacting that's respectful, that acknowledges their full humanity, that um, treats them as if they are full human beings, no matter what age they are, no matter who they are, that we set the foundation for that broader change, that the generations of children that we now um, interact with and build relationships based on this equitable model, then begins to ripple outward 
and creates this social change at a broader level. That that's my fundamental belief after you know, the, all the work I did in universities and do now, but then my own journey as a parent and recognizing that the treatment of children sets the foundation for all other forms of discrimination and domination. Really does, because that's that's the first um, big power controlling relationship that they have in their life, right? That's yes. that's how they learn it. Yeah, well, that's that's really interesting. And I, and I love that that's uh, aspect to your work. Uh, let's see. Ooh, we're getting, we're getting there. Question number nine. <laughs> what, what has been one of the more challenging aspects for you on your unschooling journey so far? I think I talked a lot about that in some of the yeah. questions, <laughs> right? Because I think that, um, and this may answer our last question too, about what's most valuable, the most challenging and most valuable part of it was recognizing that I needed to change, (laughs) that the goal wasn't to change the children in my life so that I would be more comfortable. (laughs) It was to use the discomfort that they generated in me to do my own work. And what was most value, what has been and continues to be most valuable for me personally has been the way the ways in which that healed me from the experiences I had in my own childhood, that this unschooling journey has been so much more about my journey. But I don't want to diminish, of course, the impact on the child right? and, the, <laughs> and the world that we create. But it's in that belief that we all can be whole, that we return to wholeness as adults and we create a space for them to remain whole to the greatest extent possible. We're all going to experience some pain and some trauma. And it's not about you have a happy life that never experiences any of those things. That's that's not what I create for the children in my life because I don't control their environments. <laughs> I don't control the relationship they have with others, the ways in which someone you love might hurt you, you know, in, in those other relationships they have. But it's a journey of healing for me and, and parents. And then it is a, a back to wholeness. And it's a journey of creating um, as much of a foundation of wholeness from which they then um, operate from of knowing themselves and knowing that they're enough and, and they're going to question it. Cause I see that now in Martel, even he'll question, am I, am I good enough? How am I going to make it in the world? He asked me once recently, mom, how do you know I'm going to be okay without formal schooling? Mm-hmm. And so we, it entered into this whole conversation about all the things that I see in him about the resilience that he shows, the ways in which he learns, the ways he perseveres, all of the things that I see in his day-to-day life that maybe he didn't see in himself when he questions, he hears from others. How are you going to make it? You're, you're not even going to get a high school degree, you know, all of yeah. that stuff. So, so um, that has been the most challenging part is my own work, facing my fears, facing what I hid away. And it's also been the most valuable for me personally. And the relationships that I feel like I have, the ways in which I've learned to be humble <laughs> and um, reconnect and, you know, own and be accountable for my own behaviors, but also, you know, um, come from a place of deep love for myself. And then that love translates to them. And, you know, it's just, that's the journey I'm on. I'm, and I'm still on it. I am nowhere near the end oh, of I all know. of that learning journey. Well, isn't that great? Cause that you, you come to realize that it's, it's about being human. It's not something that you, you know, just do for a certain number of years. It's, it's life. I I always, at the end, so often of my blog posts when I was writing, I would get to the point that at the bottom, it would always be like, unschooling is life. (laughs) (laughs) It is. (laughs) But I loved your point about um, your own healing being one of the most valuable outcomes because we need to do that to um, create that environment for our children, don't we? That connecting, to be able to, to do that actively and be supportive, we really need to uh, find our own place of, of comfort, don't we? Yeah, yeah. And we can be to ourselves the parents and the caregivers we might not have had and the teachers we didn't have. 
we can be that now for ourselves. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I know. As you as you're watching your child and helping them through situations, uh, I uh, your own situations are going to be going through in the back of your mind and everything. And it helps you process those moments in childhood, plus the one with your own child in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, um, as you, yeah, Hey, we're going to turn this right back to the beginning when you were talking about how, you know, we're always starting certain parts of our journey, right? Yes. You know, you may have been unschooling for 10 years, but you've never unschooled a 16 year old. So there's going to be, you know, (laughs) situations coming up where, you know, it's like, Oh gee, I haven't really thought of this before because it's never come up. So you're going to be doing that whole healing work, that whole analysis, you're going to hit that obstacle, you know, and you're going to be processing your own experiences and the one with your child. in front of you. Oh yes. 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 <laughs> it's such a glorious, I mean, in some ways it is the life I wanted. I didn't mm-hmm. even know how to get it. <laughs> You know, I didn't know what it meant, but just stepping, like taking each step, one step at a time, every day creates this life that I didn't know I could have. I knew that it had was this feeling of, gosh, this is what I want and need. And then um, in this unschooling journey, that's, I got the life I needed and I wanted, and I didn't even know it was possible. That that's it. Didn't know it was possible until until I dis- discovered it. It's beautiful. Well, I want to thank you so so much for taking the time to chat with me, Teresa. I had a great great time. <laughs> I did too, Pam. It's so yeah. wonderful to talk, and you know, it's been wonderful to connect in person a couple times, and just to be a part of this conversation. I so appreciate the opportunity. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm so glad to have you here today. And before we go, um, can you share where the best place is for people to connect with you online? Absolutely. Parentingforsocialchange.com. All spelled out. And I'm um, Parenting for Social Change on Facebook as well. And um, people can connect with me on Facebook, Teresa Graham Brett. So, yeah. Awesome. I will share those links as well in the show notes. All right. Thanks. Thanks very much. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks. I hope you found this episode helpful on your unschooling journey. And be sure to check out the growing podcast archive. The conversations never go out of date. You can find more information about my books, the Living Joyfully Network online community, and the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit online course at my website, livingjoyfully.ca.